The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Good morning, Grace Family Church. It's good to be back with you all. Um, missing a week feels like a really long time. It's always really weird. Um, just want to express my appreciation for Sean and Sheldon. Um, just up till last night, I was bouncing thoughts off them as I was trying to finish up sermon prep. Um, and I, I just, I continue to appreciate our partnership in doing this together. I, you know, I, I lead in certain ways, but I'm not alone. Grateful for you guys. Uh, we didn't talk about birthdays this morning, but Sean's is coming up on Tuesday. Tuesday. Big up, big up. I think Shelly is tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. And anniversaries. What else is going on? Oh, and Eliana. Yeah, Ellie is on Sean's birthday. And then Dana and Kevin's anniversary is tomorrow. So congratulations to you all. We're glad to be able to celebrate with you. Uh, on behalf of our family and Sam in particular, we want to just express our gratitude for uh, your support, for your condolences, for your love, for your practical service as we grieve the death of Sam's dad. Um, we love you all. We are so grateful for you all. There are no, there's no people we'd rather be with in good times and hard times than you all. And thank you for your prayers for me as I continue to recover from surgery. Uh, believe it or not, I'm still conscious of the need to pace myself. And I'm listening to my body. I saw that face, Sherwin. I saw it. Yeah, believe it or not. <laughs> well, she even turned away. Goodness, this is bad. <laughs> Let's just keep moving on. That's what we should do right now. Yeah. <laughs> so as you heard this morning, we're returning to our series in Acts entitled Witness. We expect to be in the text of this fantastic book uninterrupted for at least the next five weeks and definitely for most of the weeks until we reach Christmas. Today we're going to be wrapping up the first section of this book where Luke has dealt with Jesus' ascension and the giving of the Spirit. So please make your way to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 42 to 47. So let's get our bearings quickly. Uh, we're now in the immediate aftermath of the tremendously eventful day of Pentecost when Peter preached Jesus, exalted by God as Lord and Christ. Uh, the giver of the blessings of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. The crowd who listened to Peter had witnessed the pouring out of the Spirit on 120 of Jesus' followers. And 3,000 of them went from curious spectators to participants in God's grace. When deeply convicted by what Peter preached, they repented and were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and were added to the company that would form the early church in the city of Jerusalem. What we're about to read is a summary of what God did among them. Here at the end of Acts 2, we get to witness the transformative effect that faith in Christ had on them. Yeah, I'm excited about that too. Once again, it serves us to remember that what we're about to read is not only history. This foundational movement, sorry, this foundational moment helps us to understand what our priorities as followers of Christ ought to be. 
what it looks like for God to be among us and how he means to spread the good news about Jesus to others through us. If we're going to be the local church God wants us to be, it's important for us to see this church as the Spirit worked in them. So let's give our attention to Acts 2, 42 to 47. This is God's holy word for us, his holy church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, as always, we need your help if we're going to understand your word, if we're going to respond to your word, if we're going to be transformed by your word. So we pray that right now by your spirit you would help us to hear you help us to hear you speaking to us even as i preach help us to hear your word so that we'd be transformed more and more into the image of christ and that we would be shaped by the priorities of the spirit whom you've given us in jesus name we pray amen some of you would recall this past july uh my my friend Mark Maynell visited us to lead a seminar on faith and the arts and to preach as a part of our parable series that we did throughout the summer. During Mark's time here, uh, I was trying to figure out things for him to do because he had to rearrange his schedule. He was supposed to travel to Guyana and cancel that trip. So we had all this time. So I decided, hey, let's make a visit to the National Gallery. To my shame, I honestly cannot remember visiting the National Gallery before that trip. I mean, maybe I did it as a child some long time ago, but certainly not in my adult years. But I thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, I'm no expert in painting or photography or sculpture, but Mark helped me a lot to better understand what I was seeing. Among the many collections that are, I think, are, and some of these are permanent fixtures at the National Gallery, was one of paintings that captured life in Jamaica during the British colonial period. One of those, a, a painting of a scene in Falmouth from around 1800 by an unknown artist, captured my gaze. Painting, painting scenes like those is always selective and deliberate. The artist is telling a story. I was fascinated to observe the details they chose to include in this painting. Details that gave me some sense of what life was like then and there. Here at the end of Acts 2, our author has painted a scene of the first months of the life of the New Testament church that was born on the day of Pentecost. The spiritual descendants of the people of God that began with the family of Abraham in the Old Testament. And Luke's portrait is as carefully composed as any skillful painter's cityscape would be. There are specific things he wants us to see about the architecture, the focal points, and the distinguishing features of this community that believe the gospel as he describes their day-to-day -day lives. He's particularly concerned with portraying their commitments, their mutual care, and the compelling impact they had on the rest of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But Luke's painting doesn't stand by itself. Remember, this summary of 
the summary description of the life of the early church follows immediately after the extensive report of the events of the day of Pentecost. Our author wants us to detect, to detect the distinct fragrance of the work of the Spirit, who had fallen like heavy rains on those believers, in all that was now blossoming in and among them. And I'm convinced that Luke is offering his readers an example to admire, with elements to aspire to imitate. Here's what's happening in this scene. Through the power of the Spirit, the gospel believed creates a community that is committed, caring, and compelling. Through the power of the Spirit, the gospel believed creates a community that is committed, caring, and compelling. Here in these verses, as God works through his Spirit the, and, and, and through the gospel, a community quickly emerges with particular characteristics that distinguish them from the world around them, while at the very same time make them distinctly attractive to others. They were committed to gospel instruction and united with and caring for one another. Their day-to-day -day lives were marked by new rhythms and overflowing joy in such a way that their lives and words spoke compellingly of the Lord Jesus who had saved them. In this portrait, it is beautifully evident that through the power of the Spirit, the gospel believed creates a community that is committed, caring, and compelling. The four features I want to trace for you in this portrait of a Spirit-filled church are right here in my summary of the scene. It was a community, so that's the first one, that was committed, caring, and compelling. So let's think first then about this community. To begin, I want to invite you to step back. It was interesting being at the National Gallery because you'd walk up a flight of stairs and then you'd see a painting from across the way. And it would begin to hit you at that distance. So think of looking at this scene from across the room where you're not close enough yet to see the detail, but you're taking in the effect that it has. What impression would it give you on a whole of the early Jerusalem church? Well, they are united committed. Uh, they are a worshiping community that is generous and joyful and grateful and growing. They have this wonderful reputation in the city and their leaders literally work miracles. I mean, who would not want to be a part of a church like that? Luke's scene is almost idyllic. It's in danger of hitting us like a picture-perfect Thomas Kincaid painting, a pristine scene with warm hues. Many commentators actually think Luke is deliberately drawing on ideas from contemporary writers in Greek society that captured the aspirations, uh, their highest aspirations of what a society should look like. Now, if he's doing that, we need to remember that he's been clear that this beauty was realized through the blood-soaked cross of Jesus and his empty tomb. We know, and we've seen this already as we've been walking through this book, that Luke is portraying this new community as the beginning of the restoration of the people of God based on the promises of God from the Old Testament. But we don't need to read much further to recognize that Luke is not trying to sell us a painting of a perfect church. He's going to be open about their flaws as soon as chapters 5 and 6. Think about how this book might have served Luke's original readers as participants in this new movement. What does it mean to be a Christian? I mean, this thing was brand new in the first century. So what does it mean to be a Christian? I mean, who are we? What should life together look like? What Luke wanted them to see in this portrait was how the Spirit radically shaped the commitments and character of this fledgling community. 
Just like them, we can benefit from this text. We can admire some of the char characteristics that we see here without seeing these as the good old days that we need to go back to. And seeing this church is going to help us to look at ourselves and to look around us with a critical eye so we can evaluate some of our own tendencies and some of the trends that can influence us. So look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Before we focus on what they were committed to, it's worth our time to notice who was committed. Based on verse 41, they were the 3,000 who had responded to the gospel when Peter preached, plus the, the 120 disciples that waited for the Spirit to be given on the day of Pentecost. Almost immediately, they were characterized by particular commitments. They all, I'm borrowing that all from verse 44, and all who believed were together. They all. Luke is speaking in collective terms. We who have been raised in this radically individualistic Western culture need to have our independence and self-centeredness poked at over and over again. So permit me a longish quotation from the commentator Bruce Milner. He sharpens the point better than I could. He says, To respond to the invitation of the exalted Jesus through repentance and baptism and receive his gifts of forgiveness and new life in the Holy Spirit is to be brought into community. The New Testament, no less than the Old, knows nothing of solitary religion. Individual personal faith is no doubt necessary to appropriate the gift, God's gift of Jesus Christ and to be the vehicle of God's gracious salvation in each recipient's heart. But the act of God in saving us immediately and eternally sets us in the community of the Spirit, the body of Christ. The gospel doesn't merely create converts, but community. And Milner ends with this important nuance. Pentecost birthed a community, not a collection of persons, each claiming a new spiritual experience. So again, recognize where we live. Our culture is enthusiastically open to all kinds of mystical experiences while increasingly suspicious of institutional religion and instruction. We need to acknowledge that the failings of many a church have provided good reason for that. But the solution isn't giving up on church. Instead, we must commit to the pursuits and practices that make us into a compelling community. That is what the Spirit leads us to do. True spirituality leads us into community. Now, this community had defined leadership. What Luke does as he paints this picture is give us a summary of the internal life and external impact of the church in verses 42 and 43, and then render those things in more detail in verses 44 to 47. But in the first two verses, he twi twice draws our attention to the apostles. The whole community recognized that the 12 were those Jesus had authorized to continue the work that he had started. One of the reasons they would have recognized this was the grace that, that, that they would have seen so clearly on Peter and the 11 as they spoke on the day of Pentecost. But another is what we see in verse 43. Look at it in your Bible. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That passive construction means that we should understand that the wonders and signs were being done by God, not by them. Peter is going to make that clear in the next story we're going to look at next week in chapter 3. 
a story which is an example Luke offers of how God was working in Jerusalem to bring people to faith in Christ through miracles and the preaching of the gospel. There's an insightful connection I want you to see here. In Acts 1.1, Luke points back to all Jesus began to do and teach in the gospel that he penned. Now he's pointing to the fact that Jesus is continuing to act through the apostles, through their teaching and doing. Here's a question that this passage helps us to consider. Should we expect the same prominence of miraculous activity that we see in the Gospels and Acts today? Last week, Sean pointed out that we believe that the Holy Spirit still works miracles through people whom he has gifted to do so. But what we see here and what Peter taught as he preached earlier in this chapter is that miracles were how God accredited the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. So miracles were never the church's health plan, right? They served a particular purpose in authenticating the word of God. There are no more apostles. Not in this sense. God still gives us influential leaders gifted to serve churches beyond their local church. But there's wisdom in being very careful with that title. In the strict sense, the ministry of the apostles is finished. Based on their teaching in passages like 1 Corinthians 12, which we should not expect that the gift of miracles has ceased, but it's reasonable to recognize that it would be less prominent because God is no longer using it to authenticate the foundational teachers of the early church. So we can pray then, we can trust God, we can seek his gifts, but not be discouraged by, because our day doesn't look exactly like it did in the Gospels and Acts. So with that said, let's look more closely at this community to see what they're like. This church was committed. In verse 42, we see this first characteristic highlighted by Luke. He says they devoted themselves. They committed themselves to particular pursuits. It's a verb that pictures holding fast to something, persevering in it. He's describing not, not, not things they did once or occasionally, but continually. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That is instruction and relationships. Teaching in the context of community. This is the dominant focal point in Luke's painting. What was transforming them was not just the presence of the Spirit on its own, resident in them individually, but the Spirit working through the Word of God in the family of God. The apostles would have taught them what they had heard from Jesus about the kingdom of God and the promises of God and the hopes they had for the future. They would have taught them the new commandment that Jesus gave them. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you, you also are to love one another. Surely their devotion to the fellowship came from what they were being taught by the apostles. In addition, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The breaking of bread likely was not speaking exclusively of the Lord's Supper or communion, but of sharing meals together in general, which is noted again in verse 46. If we go by the example we see in 1 Corinthians, the Lord's Supper was probably celebrated as a part of some of those meals. But the accent here seems to be on their commitment to close familial fellowship, the kind you experience when you eat regularly together. I'll say more about this when we look at the next characteristic of this community. In verse 44, we see that their commitment extended to a togetherness that was not merely being in the same place at the same time, like you are when you're watching a movie in a theater full of strangers. It speaks to their unity. 
And their commitments were expressed day by day as they met in the temple and in individual homes. Now think of a local church of 3,120 plus children. I mean, even if they were meeting in groups of 30, 40, or 50, that would be a ton of small groups, wouldn't it? Let's begin to consider what it would look like then for us to benefit from their example through imitation. Firstly, what would it look like to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers? Well, isn't that what we can pursue through committed membership in a local church that teaches what the apostles taught? I mean, is there any other way that you can pursue all of these commitments apart from life in community in a local church? It's passages like this one that shaped how we thought and how we planned as we thought about the life of this local church uh, before we planted it. It's why we gather in this large group for worship and instruction like they did in the temple courts. It's why we gather in smaller groups like they did in their homes where we can get to know each other and encourage each other as we follow Jesus. GFC members, one of the benefits of our small groups is that they provide a relational environment that is consistent with what and how we seek to echo the apostles' teaching. I mean, you can benefit from gathering with any group of Christians, but depending on the differences in convictions, that group may or may not reinforce and deepen what you're learning on Sundays or lead you into more transparency in relationships. Just this past Thursday, our grace group gathered. It was the first time since the summer, and we gathered over cheese sandwiches and snacks and juice, and we shared what's been good and what's been hard over the last few weeks, and we prayed for one another, and it was so meaningful and so wonderful. You, you, you felt this sense of a growing shared life as we talked about what's really been going on with us. Think about this. There's a massive difference between being interested in the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and being devoted to them, right? We know the difference between casual and committed, don't we? I mean, some of us could apply those, those adjectives to our exercise routines, right? <laughs> Am I committed? Oh, maybe not. I'm kind of interested in exercise, but I don't know if I could say I'm devoted to it. So, so we know the difference then between being devoted to something and doing it only when we feel like. I want to encourage you to make Sundays sacred. What I mean is set Sundays apart, and Sunday mornings in particular. Guard this time. Protect it from the way the unrelenting demands of life can encroach on it. As much as it is within your power, don't treat Sunday morning as backup study time or backup work time. Protect it from tiredness as best as you can by pacing yourself. Do not treat Sunday as if it's the end of the week and thereby a time to pack in whatever you couldn't manage in the days before. Recognize it as the beginning of a new week and give yourself to worshiping God together with his people, receiving his instruction, and looking to him in prayer. Embrace Sunday worship as a part of God's good gift of rest and let it shape how you approach the rest of the week. And if, despite your best efforts at restraint, you're exhausted on a Sunday morning, show up anyway. Don't we do that with the other things we're devoted to? Like our jobs? If we'll help you, mark it on your calendar so that you don't treat Sunday morning as if it's free time for whatever may come up on your social or work agenda. And please do the same with grace groups. 
Set that time apart to express your commitment to the fellowship. Here's another question. Who are you devoted to? How is your faith shaping your relational commitments? You know, when you think about friendship, friendships often begin with comfort and effortless connection. Fellowship doesn't always feel that way in the beginning. It's why it requires commitment. Who is there in your life that you're committed to, not because of a shared sense of humor or musical taste or favorite activities, but because Jesus is your Lord and theirs? We need to admit to ourselves that sometimes we try to love Jesus while keeping what feels like a safe distance from other believers. But that's contrary to being devoted to the fellowship. Yes, it is contrary to being devoted to the fellowship. This community in Acts was not relating to one another at a safe distance. By the way, a safe distance is a diabolical idea sold to us by an enemy hell-bent on our destruction because isolation is anything but safe. We are not safe by ourselves. We are desperately vulnerable. The Apostle Peter warns us in his letter that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So think of those nature documentaries. Which is the animal that the lion normally gets? The one by itself, the straggler, the one who is weak or sick. So, enough said. This is an era where we need to battle the discouragement that inevitably comes our way. And I think that as we turn our hearts towards the kind of commitment we need, we can benefit from the philosophy of the wise teacher Yoda. Yes, Yoda from Star Wars. In The Empire Strikes Back, Yoda says this to his struggling student Luke. Do or do not, there is no try. So suppose you're doing commitment to the fellowship and you have some really unpleasant experiences. People gossip about you, they sin against you, they betray you. Or you just don't truly feel welcomed. You're pressing in and you still feel like an outsider. So what do you do? Well, wouldn't you be tempted to say you tried and then give up? Do. Don't try. Devote yourself to the apostles' teaching and you'll find in them what you ought to do. Here's a case in point. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You hear the do's there that we're called to? That humility, that gentleness, that patience, bearing with one another, which means that there are going to be things to bear. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. No, these are the commitments that make a local church grow strong precisely because it is not a utopia, because it is not a paradise. Make the fellowship a priority expressed in Sunday worship, a small group, and regular hospitality, which I'll say more about soon. Now, surely we need to grow in our devotion to prayer as a local church. As pastors, we found over the last few months, God has been challenging us to grow in consistently praying for you, our church, both privately and together. I'm now systematically praying through the list of our members, lifting you and your families up before the Lord. The goal is to pray for everyone at least once per month. We pray on behalf of this community every Sunday. So please focus and pray with us during that time of pastoral prayer. 
We pray for a few minutes for the service before each service, and you're welcome to join us for that. Please take every opportunity to pray together as grace groups. Now, I'm really bad at this because I'll get into the fellowship and we'll be enjoying each other. And then it's like, okay, people have to leave. Okay, let's pray. So, you know, God was very kind to me because the last time we met, I just had the thought as we were talking, oh, when each person finishes sharing, let's just pray then. And it worked really well. We just spent a few minutes praying based on what each person or each couple had shared. And so we got a lot more prayer in and I was very glad about that. So we do want to set aside more time for prayer. In fact, today we're going to end our time together doing that. We're not where we want to be, but more and more we want to be shaped by the commitments that we see here. This community was committed to instruction, to fellowship, and to prayer. Now as he fills out the scene in greater detail, Luke draws our attention to another characteristic in verses 44 and 45. They were caring. Let's read those verses again. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Their togetherness expressed itself in solidarity between them, despite their differences in nation of birth, mother tongue, and economic class. This church was, at this point, made up exclusively of people of Jewish descent. But that doesn't mean that they found it easy to get along any more than we do as Jamaicans. They were as diverse as people would be in any city. Rich and poor, young and old, powerful and weak, simple and sophisticated. Their unity was not based on their Jewishness. It was based on a new, shared belief in the good news about Jesus. That's why Luke identifies them as all who believed. This common faith created a new relationship with each other. What does he mean when he says they had all things in common? Does that mean that we should be able to go out into the parking lot, for example, after the service and pick a car that we like and then head towards whoever drove it and request the keys saying what's yours is mine? Was this some early form of communism where private ownership of resources was not allowed? No, that wasn't the case. In verse 46, we see that they met in their own homes. They weren't selling everything or giving everything up. Verse 45 clarifies what Luke was referring to in the previous verse. In response to particular needs within the community, those who had the means would liquidate assets and share with others. And this was voluntary, not mandatory. Eckhard Snabel explains, theirs was not a utopian vision, but the expression in real life of the love and care that believers in, in Jesus extend in practical terms for one another. Now, this is a massive challenge to those of us with means who have been taught to put ourselves and our immediate family first. This extends, if you listen to the advice, to ensure that we've saved several months of salary in case anything happens, that we're putting aside money to send our children to the top universities, and we're saving for retirement once we begin working. Plus, you have to enjoy the fruits of your labor, of course, with weekends away and vacations to desirable destinations, don't you? If all of those are priorities that we embrace, where's the room to meet the needs of others? What are we actually prepared to sacrifice? Now, it's fascinating because what you see here in Acts is that these believers were prepared to sacrifice wealth. Because wealth was in the form of possessions. Nobody had bank accounts with cash. 
It meant when there was a need, they had to go sell something in order to free up the resources to share with one another. Now, the apostles would have taught these new, new believers Christian ethics around money and possessions as they themselves had been taught by Jesus. Imagine them gathered in the temple hearing a retelling of, of the parable of the rich fool that we preached on this past summer. Imagine them being taught these words from Jesus from Luke 12, 32 to 34. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Milner com com comments on, on the scene in this way. What Luke depicts here is a company where the material had suddenly become of secondary significance in light of the blessing of God, the Holy Spirit. A community where spiritual realities had come to override the desire for a comfortable, secure material environment. But here's the question. How were they aware of each other's needs? I think the text offers us two answers. One on the surface and the other between the lines. They drew close to one another and they made their needs known. Or hospitality and transparency. In verse 46, we see that it was their regular pattern to share meals in each other's homes. Day after day doesn't necessarily imply every single day of, of every single week. But it certainly implies that this was their regular rhythm. Regular occasions rather than special ones. And if that's the case, then these were not dinner parties. I mean, who could afford that? No, this was sharing what they had and pooling together. Hospitality is not entertaining. It's not breaking out the fine dining ware and throwing a party that others will talk about for years to come. It's opening up our space and our lives to others on regular days. This is Snabble again. Since followers of Jesus belong to the same household of faith, sharing common beliefs, values, and purpose, it is a matter of course that they meet in private homes. It was only in such privacy that the new believers could know the other believers, learn about their needs, and have fellowship that included sacrificial giving and sharing. If we are regularly in each other's lives, we will get to know each other's stories. We'll be become aware of each other's trials and start to notice each other's needs. But I think what's implied here is that we should be the sort of community that's not ashamed of our material needs. And that's hard, isn't it? That goes against the grain of our culture, doesn't it? We are taught to tough it out when things are hard and to stand on our own two feet even when our strength has failed entirely. Our culture teaches us to be ashamed of being needy and to be proud of not needing anything from anyone. But the gospel ought to challenge that. It tells us that we are entirely destitute spiritually. All of the beggars that we meet in the Gospels and the man who was lame from birth that we're going to meet in the next chapter in Acts, those are all pictures of our spiritual reality. And because of Christ, we have been made rich. Now, if we are all spiritually bankrupt outside of Christ and rich beyond imagination in Him, do you think that needing help from each other changes anything about our true value and worth? God has committed to provide for our material needs, but he often does that through other believers. 
His household is an economy in which, in, in which inequality is deliberately maintained so that his grace can be on display. We, the Baines, Taylors, and Campbells, saw this in massive brushstrokes during our sojourn in the U.S. several years ago. Time and time again, God just blew our minds with the joyful generosity of others. And as we worked through our discomfort in needing so much and receiving so lavishly, people would tell us, you will have your own opportunities to bless others in similar ways. And that's definitely already proved to be the case. So I need to say this to our family. Loved ones, please do not let me hear stories of you being in need weeks and months after the fact. Please do not suffer by yourself. Make your needs known. Thank you to those of you who have been doing that. We are a church where many of us are relatively well off financially. But there have been real and significant needs from time to time. And it's, it really has been a joy. I can say that from the bottom of my heart. It's been a joy to be able to meet those needs. Your giving is what has allowed us to meet those needs. It's been a delight also to see as grace groups rally around each other in times of need and serve each other in this way. My grace group was even able to help me to serve a poor brother who's not a part of this church on occasion when he was in dire need. And it was wonderful just, you know, I, I, think, I think Kirk and I were talking about a situation and I was saying to him, hey, maybe you should raise it with your grace group and then realize I should be raising a situation with my grace group. And for several months, people came through in ways that blew my mind and really blessed him. Let's embrace the priority of hospitality to whatever extent we're able, even if it's simply buying and having lunch with a brother or sister from time to time. Let's share our means and our needs. In a community like ours, sometimes our needs are not material. Sometimes it's company. Sometimes it's help with the children. Sometimes it's a listening ear or wise counsel. Let's be aware of each other's needs and let's look to see how we can serve one another. Let's determine to live close enough to see each other's needs, to make our needs known, and to meet each other's needs as we are able. I want to just take this moment to commend several people in our community who do this very well in different ways. Big up to the tailors. Thank you guys for the way you open your home on Friday evenings and just allow people to come over. And I know many relationships have been deepened in that space. I want to big up Kirk Harris, and we can add Nicole now. Kirk, over the years, has just hosted people who just need a place to stay. Thank you for that, brother. I want to big up Lorraine Rainford. I don't know if Lorraine is here today. She's not, but Lorraine, consider yourself bigged up. Um, Lorraine also has opened her home. Um, I also want to acknowledge the many families who host grace groups in their home. Thank you guys for serving in this way. So this community that we're looking at in this portrait was caring and committed. And that was what made them compelling. This is our last characteristic. This was a compelling community. There's no reason to think that these people are reading how to win friends and influence people. They were not attending workshops on building their personal brand. Surely there would have been people among them who were prominent individuals. But these folks were not the fireworks that illuminated the rest. The celebrities and success stories that brought attention to Jesus uh, and an otherwise uninteresting community. What was attractive, what was pulling the rest of the city magnetically, was the nature of the community itself. 
ordinary people with extraordinary commitment and care. How does Luke highlight the compelling nature of this local church? In verse 43, he says that awe came upon every soul. Most commentators think he was speaking about all of Jerusalem, including the believers themselves. They would have been in awe of what was going on among them as much as those who observed them would have been in awe of them. The awe simultaneously reaches back to verse 42. Their commitment to instruction, fellowship, and prayer would have been astounding to see. And it reaches forward to the rest of verse 43. Signs and wonders would certainly have caused people's jaws to drop and open their ears to the apostles' preaching. That's exactly what we'll see happening in the next chapter. But recognize that this community itself was miraculous. Everything Luke has highlighted is the extraordinary and powerful work of the Spirit, including the care they expressed for each other at great cost and the countercultural hospitality they displayed. Obviously, their unbelieving neighbors would have seen them gathering regularly in each other's homes all of a sudden after the day of Pentecost, this massive shift in their life rhythm. Their rich neighbors would have gladly purchased possessions and belongings from them, wondering why the sudden willingness to sell what everyone coveted. Look at verse 46 in your text. Their joy was compelling. Jerusalem was a very religious city. Lots of people would have attended afternoon prayers, but as religion goes, many would have done so out of mere obligation, and maybe with some reluctance. But these believers were glad to gather in a temple and happy to be together. That joy filled their homes as they shared daily meals. Many of us do not have to imagine the warm greetings and laughter because we're experiencing it, aren't we? And surely their neighbors experience this hospitality also, encountering the gospel in practice and words in their homes. Bringing this forward to our context, the author Rosario Butterfield says this, Radically ordinary hospitality shows the skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. So extending hospitality to our unbelieving neighbors, friends, and co-workers is one of the best ways to introduce them to Jesus and his body. That's something we should consider, strategize around, pursue, and encourage each other in. Verse 47, in describing this community, says that they were known for their exuberant praise of God, and they were well thought of, favored by the whole city. Milner points out this reality about human nature that we ought not forget. People were made for community, and to discover a congregation bound together in, in the love of the Holy Spirit is often the key to their being persuaded to join it. Church, even in our gatherings on Sunday, you are doing such a good job of making this local church attractive. Unlike the trends, we meet in a well-lit space without smoke machines and dramatic stage lighting. Being here in the middle is far from ideal. But your joy in Jesus, your love for one another, your delight in and care for the children that God has blessed us with, and the way you welcome and take interest in our guests makes GFC magnetic to many. I've heard this from many a visitor, and some of them are still here. <laughs> this is in and of itself gospel witness. Sam Albury and Ray Ortland, who have benefited from a lot, they had a, have a port podcast called You're Not Crazy, and now they've written a book based on that, encouraging pastors. They write this, 
The beauty of community in a church is meant to be a plausibility structure for the gospel. Lifting its social visibility as a pillar, reinforcing its persuasive power as a buttress. A church makes the gospel known and even compelling. And it will not be a captivating voice for the truth if it is not living as a beautiful family. So we're not just dispensing ideas. We are embodying that truth as we walk in obedience to Jesus. And when we are in each other's lives, when we're learning to love one another, when we are learning to repair relationships when they break, people look on and say, what is that? That's beautiful. I don't know if I believe all of that stuff, but there's something going on there that's not going on in other places. So thank you for being the church you are and embracing the culture we're seeking to build. Now, this compelling community was growing daily. Look at the second half of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's a theological gem from Luke's pen. How were they growing? Was it through innovative evangelistic techniques? Through their skill in apologetics, offering eloquent answers to the questions of the day? Through commandeering the performing arts for gospel messaging? No. The Lord was adding to their numbers daily. His sovereign work was responsible for saving people and bringing them into the church. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> Joel must behave. Joel, behave. I'll state the script. <laughs> that was in the script, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> But is Luke suggesting in, in framing it this way that the church themselves was not concerned with spreading the gospel? Is he saying that all their attention was on their lives together and God was doing the external work without a word from them? If the Lord is the one who adds to his church, does that give us an excuse to be passive? Can we justify what we do sometimes, you know, where we, we wait to be particularly moved by the Spirit, you know? Like, it's not a gentle touch. It's more of a kick. Like, say something. Say something. Like, come on, come on. Say something. You know? Can we justify that kind of thing? Or are these verses pushing us to be prayerful and proactive? Now, evangelism is not explicit here, but it is implied. It becomes much more explicit as this text progresses. There was in the first place the apostles' teaching, which we've already seen and will see again, had a, a public component. So in the next chapter, we're going to see Peter preaching in the temple. And Luke is clearly indicating that the magnetic appeal of a community that was joyful, united, and caring for one another was instrumental in their growth. But the believers surely would have been asked questions by their neighbors. I mean, your whole life changed. All of a sudden, you're meeting with people they've never seen you with from Adam. Like, who's that guy? Oh, that's, that's my brother. What do you mean that's your brother? I don't look nothing like you. No, no. I mean, he's my brother in Jesus. What do you mean your brother in Jesus? You know, there's the gospel, as they live it out, is starting to generate conversations. And they would have had many opportunities to give an answer for the hope that they had in Jesus. And if they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, they would have had a growing understanding of God's mission. And that they, following the lead of the apostles and having also received the Holy Spirit, were to be Jesus' witnesses. This should encourage us to embrace a lifestyle of regularly sharing about Jesus and give us confidence that God works even through our faltering efforts. 
Surely this community did not feel like evangelistic experts in those early days. But surely the love of Christ compelled them to speak of Jesus. I got the opportunity not so many weeks ago to speak of Jesus to a doctor that I was visiting. And I said some things in response to some of what she was saying to me. And as usual, it's like hours later, I'm like, man, I should have said that instead of. And I really hate when that happens to me. But if God is the one who adds to his church, who knows what he will do through the things we say? So far, we have not organized evangelistic meetings or gone on the streets to share the gospel. Now, we're not necessarily opposed to evangelistic efforts like those. In fact, years ago, Sheldon played a significant part in pioneering a ministry where we shared the gospel in the plazas in Halfway Tree regularly. Sean and I have spoken at apologetic lectures at UE and UTEC in years gone by. But we think that home-based or possibly even office-based studies where people can get to know Jesus could be a very helpful approach in this cultural moment. Particularly when hosted in homes, this allows us to bring people closer to us so that they can see our lives and our community. But ultimately, we need to recognize and embrace that evangelism is not actually driven by activities, but by our daily lives and conversations. This passage depicts a consistent direction that's very helpful and should shape our expectations and aspirations. Here we see that in a local church, God's work begins in us, challenging and changing us, and moves out through us to others. As we respond to the work of the Spirit by committing and caring, God makes us a sort of compelling community that attracts those around us as we display His work and speak His word. Through the power of the Spirit, the gospel believed creates a community that is committed, caring, and compelling. Every local church in every age should desire to resemble this church. We should desire to embrace the priorities of the Spirit and the patterns that accord with the gospel of our salvation. We cannot and do not need to go back to the early church. It's very clear from the book of Acts and in the epistles that the early church was far from perfect. But we can and we should learn from them. That's why we're given this scene in the book of Acts. The way forward from where we are is to be committed to the teaching of the apostles given to us in the New Testament and to the fellowship in a local church. The way forward is to be committed to sharing our lives and our living spaces, our means and our needs, to praying and praising God together as he pours out his grace on us. The way forward is to seek to become the kind of community whose verbal witness to the Lord Jesus uh, is made compelling by our joy in the Lord and each other and our care for and commitment to one another. And the power for all of this is not our own. We don't grit our teeth and work it up. It comes from the Holy Spirit who has been poured out on us. May we continue to push deeper into the gospel in such a way that it pulls us closer to each other in committed care and pulls others towards our community as we speak of Jesus day after day. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.